I am so disappointed with this slide. (laughs) I made it, and I started on it right as I was supposed to start working on my sermon, and it took me an hour. And there's still that little crummy watermark next to the text art, which I blotted out with a draw pen, and for some reason now you can see it. Well, (laughs) it took me so long to make this crummy thing. I should stop wasting my time on things I'm not good at. All right, anyway, moving on. (laughs) This is the first Sunday of Advent. So we are going to be spending the weeks leading up to Christmas. A lot of churches do this. They celebrate the Advent season. And what this looks like is we're going to look at the first arrival of Jesus. We're going to look back at that. And we're also going to look forward to his second coming. And Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus, which just means arrival. So basically, it's a celebration of his two arrivals, the first one and the one to come. So we'll do a lot of looking at scripture through those two different lenses. Um, And I'm going to be going today first. We're going to start with Psalm 110 today, which has a lot of these different elements. It's got like the first coming elements. It's got some eternal heavenly realm elements, and it has some things that are still to come elements as well. Let's just go ahead and forget that happened and read through Psalm 110. All right. This is the declaration of the Lord to my Lord. Remember, little primer here. Remember, BJ just talked about the names of God, and he talked about the small all caps Lord, and then just the Lord with the capital L. So there's some differences here. We'll talk a little bit about that. It's very important in this psalm. This is the declaration of the Lord to my Lord. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. Rule over your surrounding enemies. Your people will volunteer on your day of battle. In holy splendor from the womb of the dawn, the dew of your youth belongs to you. The Lord has sworn an oath and will not take it back. You are a priest forever, according to the pattern of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his anger. He will judge the nations, heaping up corpses. He will crush leaders over the entire world. He will drink from the brook by the road. Therefore, he will lift up his head. That's the entirety of what we'll talk about today. We'll focus more on certain parts than others. And if you're looking for a line for your Christmas card, I would not recommend he will the heap up corpses part. (laughs) There's other better Christmas lines to use. All right. So Psalm 110 on its face, if you wanted to, you could read some of this. It's just like, oh, this is kind of a kingly thing. This is a little bit of a, say, a history of David. This is some of the things he did. Um, It's definitely a stretch at some verses. Other verses, you could read it on its face like that. But it only finds its complete fulfillment in Jesus. And the messianic implications of this psalm are so strong that it's actually the most quoted psalm in the whole New Testament. And the first example of these New Testament quotations comes from Jesus himself. He comes right out and says, this is about me. I am the one that is coming to fulfill all of this. And as he does that, it also provides us with a lot of insight into the Messianic implications of this psalm as Jesus uses it to point to himself. So let's take a look at that here in Matthew chapter 22. While the Pharisees were assembled, Jesus questioned them. 
What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? David's, they answered. Jesus said to them, How then does David in the spirit call him Lord? For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So if David calls him Lord, how can he be David's son? So Jesus is asking this of the Pharisees, and this is messing with their whole tradition and their their whole paradigm. So the first thing I want to point out here is the word Christ. We've talked about this before, but it's important to notice here. Christ is a title, right? So it's from the Greek word Christos, which means anointed or chosen one. And its Hebrew equivalent is Mashiach, which is what we get the word Messiah from. So that also means anointed or chosen one. So we can read this verse, or verse 42, that Jesus says, we can read it like this. It can say, what do you think about the Messiah? So Jesus isn't saying, what do you think about me, even though I am the Messiah? He's saying to them, what do you think about the prophesied one to come? What do you say about him? That's what he's saying here. Whose son is he? And of course, their reply is they say that he is David's son. They know that he's going to be descended from David. So that's their answer. But they can't reconcile how the Messiah could be both a descendant of David and also somehow David's Lord, because they are missing that fully God, fully man piece. They can't reconcile all of that. And uh, just to round out kind of verse one here, what do we know about um, sitting at the right hand of God? and enemies as a footstool, just from our New Testament. We know that Jesus ascended to the right hand of God, and according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Jesus destroys all power, dominion, and authority, both earthly and heavenly, when the end comes. But right now, he's ruling and reigning in heaven over all these disarmed spiritual forces. And there's a time where more Gentiles, more people come to believe, come in before the end comes. So right now he's ruling and reigning over his enemies even now. And eventually there will be a destruction of all of that. So that's what we know about all of that. So there's this, all so far, this idea of royalty that's taking place here. A lot of kingly ideas. When you look at a lot of titles in your Bible, depending on your translation, this psalm will be titled The Priestly King, and that's very fitting. So this idea of royalty extends into the second verse, which says, The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. Rule over your surrounding enemies. So upon a surface reading, if you weren't reading this in a prophetic light, upon a surface reading, we can say that David did that, right? His authority was established by the Lord, and that authority was extended into the surrounding kingdoms. And the hub and the center of David's royal rule and power was in Jerusalem, um, which is also a common understanding of Zion. I'm equating those two, Jerusalem and Zion. So that's where David's hub of power was, and he extended that out from there, and he ruled around him. So I'm like, oh, yeah, he kind of did that. But again, This finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. Remember that many in Israel in the time of Jesus were expecting the Messiah to overthrow the Roman oppressors. And that's what they were looking for. They were looking for that physical manifestation of authority. When Pilate asks Jesus, though, when he says, are you king of the Jews? Remember what Jesus said. He said, 
My kingdom is not of this world. And if it were, my servants would be fighting, but they're not. So if we look at verse 2 here, not as a physical kingdom overthrow, and we look at it as a spiritual kingdom, then what would you say would be the mighty scepter of Jesus that rules from Zion? This is how I think a lot of people think of it. Instead of looking at the mighty scepter being extended from Jerusalem as a physical power, let's look at it from the spiritual kingdom, Jesus's kingdom side. The mighty scepter of King Jesus is his word. It's his word, the word of truth, that he is God become flesh, that he died in the place of humanity, that he was raised, and that he sits at the right hand of the Father, and that all who call on his name will be saved. That's his scepter of power. Think of what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. He says that he's not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation for anyone who believes. So the world has never recognized it as that. You know, the world just thinks it's pathetic that Jesus died on the cross. You know, how are you going to talk about strength and power when your Savior does something like that? But it is true strength and power because of the upside down kingdom. So that's Jesus's scepter of power is the word of truth about who he is, what he's done, and that those that believe on that will be saved. And this gets even, we can even deepen this a little bit when we think about the instructions of Jesus that he gives um, to the disciples before he's ascended into heaven. Should I put that in here? Yes. This is um, Luke chapter 24. Jesus talking. He told them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He also said to them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And look, I am sending you what my father promised. As for you, stay in the city until you are empowered from on high. So before he ascends, he instructs the disciples to stay in Jerusalem. And they're going to receive this power from on high. And this message of who Jesus is and what, that, what those implications are for all of humanity is going to start in Jerusalem. And it's going to go out from there which is just exactly what our psalm says, right? That scepter of power ruling from Jerusalem. I think that's cool that he fulfilled that right here. And I do think that's what the focus of verse 2 in Psalm 110 is, is that word of power going out from Jerusalem. But you can also look forward and think about the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven and the Lamb and God being its light and all of those things the new Jerusalem. There's just all these implications and themes that flow through the scripture. So this, this mighty scepter comes from Zion, from Jerusalem. And then this verse finishes up by saying, rule over your surrounding enemies, which we talked about that a little bit with verse one and the enemies being his footstool. Um, ruling over your surrounding enemies. Another translation could be to rule in the midst of, of your enemies. And we talk about this a lot, about the overlapping kingdoms, right? How the kingdom of heaven has come, how Jesus announced that right in hostile enemy territory. He came in and started to develop these little heaven pockets. Um, he brought 
God's will and his kingdom came. And it's continuing to expand right here in hostile territory. He inaugurated his kingdom in the midst of every enemy imaginable, human and spiritual. He rules from inside of people that used to be hostile to him. (laughs) Before you met him, you were his enemy. He died for you while you were still his enemy. And when you come to know him, he rules from inside of you, that place that used to be hostile territory. He rules over disarmed spiritual forces. And no matter what they try to do, no matter how much fight they try to put up, it's just a matter of time before they're completely destroyed. Nothing is going to stop the expansion of Jesus' kingdom. It's here, and it's going to come in its fullness. So he is definitely ruling in the midst of his enemies. As we move on to verse 3 here, starting right there, your people will volunteer on your day of battle in holy splendor from the womb of the dawn, the dew of your youth belongs to you. That's really poetic, right? That's very painting a picture. Uh, Verse 3 is actually a contender for the most obscure Hebrew in all of the Psalms. (laughs) So, Me really knowing what it means is a long shot. Um, But while people, there's going to be different translations and different words used for um, how the Hebrew is translated here. But commentators kind of come pretty close to in line with each other about what they think this means just based on the structure of the psalm. So far, we've talked a lot about king stuff and ruling stuff, royal stuff. Most people think it's a continuation on that. Kind of makes sense. Your people will volunteer. This speaks about a free will offering. The people or the subjects, some translation use of this king, they're going to offer themselves freely in his service on the day of his power. That starts to make sense. If you think about the power we've discussed so far, has to do with the message of the gospel itself, the truth. It does not seem like a stretch to me to look at this as people like us, people that believe um, the message of power, offering themselves in service to further the message of the gospel. That all just comes together for me. That makes perfect sense. So that's probably a lot of what that could mean there. Um, It reminds me of Paul when he says that um, to give yourself as a, a living sacrifice a free will offering. And the second half of this is even more obscure. The part where it talks about in holy splendor from the womb of the dawn, the dew of your youth belongs to you. That's even more obscure than the first part. Um, It seems to be that it's a poetic reference to the vitality, vigor, strength, and freshness of the Messiah himself. And, or, It could be talking about him bestowing all of those things on those subjects that believe and go forth to share his message of power. People aren't sure. It could be either or. It could be both. I don't know. But you kind of get the general gist of what's being said here. So let's move on to verse 4. And this is another kind of bulk of what we'll talk about today starting here. The Lord has sworn an oath and will not take it back. You are a priest forever, according to the pattern of Melchizedek. I found it interesting that if you came to the Thanksgiving community service, BJ talked a little bit about Melchizedek. 
and how we don't really know who he is or what he is. <laughs> He's a very enigmatic figure. But what we do know about him is enough to do some serious communicating about what people should be looking for in the Messiah. So let's take a look, since it's really short, let's just look at Melchizedek, because he's mentioned just once here and then again in Psalm 110. So that's two times in all of the Old Testament. He's talked about in the New Testament as well, but it's just a short blip. So let's read through that. This is in Genesis chapter 14. Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest to God most high. He blessed him and said, Abram is blessed by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has handed over your enemies to you. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. That's it. (laughs) That's all that we hear about this strange, ancient king priest that Jesus is fashioned after this pattern. He's going to come forth in the same type of order as Melchizedek. So, what, we, what can we pull? What things can we look at here that point forward to priest king to come, Jesus? So Melchizedek is a type of Jesus, and he reflects these divine attributes. I had this all written out, guys, just from my own brain. And then I saw how perfectly my study Bible outlined it with these divine attributes, and I backspaced my own whole thing <laughs> and substituted theirs because they laid it out really well. So This came from some notes in my own study Bible, and it just helped organize the information. So Melchizedek is a type of Jesus, and he reflects these divine attributes here of eternity, sovereignty, righteousness, and peace. And this is all laid out really nicely for us in Hebrews chapter 7. The writer of Hebrews fills out the picture of how these two fit together. We'll just go through them one by one. So Melchizedek is a type of Jesus in regards to eternity. Um, We're not given a record of the birth or the death of Melchizedek anywhere. So without having the story of how he came to be or when he came to end, we can essentially see him as a priest, as being a priest that doesn't have a beginning or end. And that's very much like Jesus. That's who Jesus is. And that's outlined here in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 3. Without father, mother, or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. That's how Jesus fulfills that in terms of eternity. The next thing is sovereignty. And if you go to Hebrews and read chapters 5 through 7, you'll get, there's even more than what I'm going to outline today, but it's a great place for you to read as we're in the Advent season to look at some of this fulfillment stuff. So sovereignty is another point of this typology. We're not given a record of genealogy for Melchizedek. And remember, for those that were made priests according to the law, genealogy was everything. Priests came from the Levites. They came from that family line. Um, Melchizedek here is a Canaanite. He's not an Israelite. Israel doesn't even exist. (laughs) At the point, like, we're still calling Abraham Abram at the point that Melchizedek enters the story. So Israel didn't even exist, but yet we have this priest of the God Most High. So he was a priest according to God's sovereign choice 
um, not according to the traditions of the law. Just like Jesus. What line did Jesus come from? Does anyone remember? Judah, right. Not, not the line that we hear about priests coming from, and that's outlined here in Hebrews chapter 7 as well. For the, for the one these things are spoken about belonged to a different tribe. No one from it has served at the altar. Now it is evident that our Lord came from Judah, and Moses said nothing about that tribe concerning priests. And this becomes clearer if another priest like Melchizedek appears, who did not become a priest based on a legal regulation about physical descent, but based on the power of an indestructible life. So Jesus, we talk about him all the time being the anointed, the chosen one. And um, so his wasn't according to genealogy either. So that's how he fulfills that part of the typology. Next thing, the last couple are pretty simple. Um, Jesus fulfills the typology because of righteousness and peace. Melchizedek means the meaning of his name is king of righteousness. We know that names in Hebrew are often important, that they mean something. His means king of righteousness. Um, So Jesus is the ultimate king of righteousness. And also peace. This is how he fulfills peace. Peace, um, he was king of Salem, and Salem means peace. So literally, Melchizedek was king of peace. These are all ways in which we refer to Jesus. He fulfills all of those things. Just a few last things um, on Melchizedek and some neat things is that um, Salem, the place that he ruled from, Salem would become Jerusalem eventually. It would be, a.k.a. the city of David, Zion, the place where the temple was. It would eventually become that. Melchizedek also unites the roles of priest and king. There's a lot of times in the Old Testament where kings act like priests. Sometimes they'll do some priestly stuff like David will put on the ephod and, you know, dance in front of the ark and all of that. But those roles are separate. They're kept separate. And in Melchizedek, they're united. And in Jesus, they're united. Um, And if you go back to our little section about Melchizedek here. He acts as a mediator. We know that's what priests do. That's what Jesus does for us as our high priest forever for eternities. He acts as that mediator. He brought reconciliation between man and God for all time. So Melchizedek here acts as a mediator between Abram and Yahweh. He pronounces a blessing from Yahweh on Abram, and he offers praise to Yahweh on behalf of Abram. That's priest stuff. And lastly, Abram offers him a tenth of everything. And all these activities foreshadow the Levitical priesthood of Israel, and they all find their fulfillment in Jesus, the ultimate mediator between Yahweh and all of humanity. So to round this out and finish up everything, I didn't want to just leave these hanging. Um, I want to say something to touch on these a little bit, these last verses. So verses 5 and 6, they portray like a battle scene. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his anger. He will judge the nations, heaping up corpses. He will crush leaders over the entire world. He will drink from the brook by the road. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This is warrior stuff. This is fulfillment stuff. on The day when the enemies of God will be punished. That's just an eventuality. It's going to happen. 
So this sounds very familiar and similar to other portions of scripture that talk about future judgment or the day of the Lord. And it pictures the priestly king at the right hand of Yahweh executing judgment on those that oppose him. And some commentators even point to, to me, this all sounds futury, like it, it's yet to come. But some commentators point to how this is exercised in small ways. Like example of that would be um, the Herod that when uh, the people called him God and tried to worship him and he didn't stop it, then he got eaten by worms. <laughs> um, some commentators point to um, that situation as being um, a small fulfillment of the punishment of God's enemies and those that oppose him. And I think it could be, you know, it could be both. Um, and this last verse here about drinking from the brook by the road, there's some obscure cross-references that this could be pointing to about the place where they anointed kings at the Gihon Spring. But most likely, um, this just portrays the priestly king on this enemy-defeating campaign. Like, he's not going to rest. He's not really coming to a place of rest until all of this is defeated and all of this is done. And he just drinks by the brook, drinks from the brook as he goes along to defeat the enemies of God. And his head is held high because of the victory he has over the enemies of God. Uh, so that's Psalm 110. It's a little Advent look at that. Like I said, some things that have already happened when Jesus had his first coming. Some things that are happening on an eternal scale on the heavenly realm. Him ruling and reigning from that place. And some things that are yet to come in the judgment and defeat of the enemies of God. So this Advent season, as we work through all of this, like I said, I encourage you to look through Hebrews chapter 7, to look at some of these psalms, and to take encouragement from them that look at all of the things that Jesus has already fulfilled. We always talk about his promises being yes and amen. I find it encouraging to look at the things he's already done. They're so innumerable, the, the prophecies that have been fulfilled. And put your, I mean, you could hang your hat on that. Look and look forward to the things that he has yet to do. He's going to do them. <laughs> He's done these things. He's going to do the other things too. You can trust what he says. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful for your word. We're thankful for your promises. We're thankful for the great access that we have to your word, Lord. I pray that you would just illuminate it for us, Lord. Bring us revelation as we read it. And I pray that that hope and encouragement and peace would run deep in us, Lord, that you would deepen that, that it would strengthen us, give us boldness to go forward in joy, knowing that you are going to do all of the things that you said you are going to do. You are good. You are faithful like that. So I pray that you would just deepen that revelation in us, Lord. Continue to teach us. In Jesus' name, amen.